to an episode of the Tifa Mahapi Show hosted by myself. The show explores the impact, whether famously or infamously, some of my guests have had on the world. I believe that opening businesses and, and the healthy capitalism without the corporations which destroy the environment, etc. I think be naive to say that we've completely overcome any polarizing or divisive issues on the racial front. We thank you for taking some time out to listen to the podcast. Starting a startup is hard. Starting an e-commerce startup is even harder. But before we even get to talking about building a sustainable and profitable startup, what actually defines a startup? So we talk about growth versus scale. So growth, you've got a business, you're, you're growing your revenues 10% every year. You know, from an MBA standpoint, five pillars, you're the gold standard. You're beating inflation. Well done, you have your bonus, have your holiday and the month In our business, it's a, it's, it's a, the expectation is completely unrealistic. Hi, Mr. Startup, with no money, we want you to grow an X billion dollar business in six years in a new area that doesn't exist against all reasonable market forces. It's, it, it's a completely, it's a complete fool's error. Um, that's where we talk about scale. And scale, you kind of want to start growing 20% month on month, which compounds about 380 or somewhere around there. My math's probably correct on that. Um, but it's a whole different level of um, sort of, you know, revenue growth per year. It, 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 potentially an insane task, but, but again, we go out and do that. And, and you hit the nail on the head. The, the easiest cheat to see if something is scalable is to see whether or not a human being has to be awake and at their desk to service a customer to do it. That's the voice of Craig McLeod, my guest on this episode of the podcast. Craig is the founder and CEO of BoxCommerce, an e-commerce startup that has built a platform that helps businesses and individuals set up their online stores. Added to this, Craig was also once a VC in South Africa, but more importantly, he has over two decades of experience in the digital technology industry across Africa and Southeast Asia. Despite his achievements in the industry and ongoing work, you will hardly ever come across Craig being featured on many media platforms, except on this podcast, of course. If someone has to take out a giant advert to tell you how great they are, they probably aren't. Several weeks after recording this podcast with Craig towards the end of 2020, his company was selected among several around the world that were set to partner with Facebook in different regions to enable e-commerce across Facebook's different offerings. I trust you'll find our conversation insightful. Craig, what's up, man? Uh, one thing that always surprises me about you is that you hardly ever feature in publications. Is it because you're an introvert or is it intentional? I think it's a mixture of both. I think um, if someone has to take out a giant advert to tell you how great they are, they probably aren't. Um, and I'm always kind of surprised uh, when people do want to hear the silly things I have to say. <laughs> now, you don't say silly things. And the why I say it's, it surprises me because you've got so much experience. And I realized this, I think, a couple of years back when you were talking about that digital bank that you used to work at. I was a customer. Of it. I forget the name now. And I'm like, oh, somebody knows that bank? Because it's been like a decade, like two decades or so that that bank stopped existing. Yeah, good, good, oddly enough, 20 years ago for 2020. Yeah, yeah two decades, 2020, that's the bank, two, two, two decades ago. So I realized like, wow, this guy's pretty old. Well, at least almost as old as me or, or older than me. Give us yeah, quick... put me out to pasture. <laughs> no, far from it, far from it. Look, I mean, uh, talking about startup founders and not taking out adverts and all that, I mentioned that because I think over the past decade, there's been a deluge of 
media is guilty, but also sort of startup founders, if you can, I can put it that way, across the continent, are sort of cutting and pasting what they're seeing happen in Silicon Valley, where there's always a poster child for a certain industry and they parade it on the media, etc. And that not only extends as far as publicity goes, but even in business models. And we see a lot of them not gaining traction because they're just copying and pasting. And one industry you're quite familiar with is e-commerce. Just to kick this off, what are some of the trends you're seeing and some of the differences you're seeing between e-commerce, firstly, in South Africa and across the continent, compared to, let's say, Southeast Asia and the US? So I think that's a great question. I think... E-commerce has absolutely boomed in, in the time of COVID. And there, there are a couple of industries that have kind of really kicked off payments is the other one. And I think that's kind of interrelated to that. And I mean, we're seeing in some cases 500% month-on-month growth. Companies like Yoko have just launched their, um, their online payments are doing incredibly well um, as people move from kind of physical sales to the kind of the online sales. Um, one of our competitors, a company called Shopify, they've gone from a 30 billion valuation to 107 billion market cap in just four months. And Goldman's actually reckons they're going to go up another 400% uh, in the coming year or two. So e-commerce is, is definitely here to stay, but it's finally having that, that moment of transition where it's starting to boom. And there was this lovely joke on LinkedIn and it said, uh, who was responsible for change in your business? Was it your CIO? Was it your officer? Or C, was it COVID? And, and I think really the pandemic has created this perfect storm, um, which is kind of these things you always want to succeed. It's a lot of luck and timing. And I think luck and timing has come in the form of a pandemic e-commerce. And what we're seeing across, um, certainly in Africa, is, is a massive boom and a shift where people are suddenly aggressively moving to e-commerce. It's become their imperative. A lot of the bigger businesses, the blue chips we service on our, our digital services side are, are moving to not digital first, but really digital only in terms of their way of servicing. Um, across Africa, we're seeing a huge upswing in, in payments, in e-commerce, in delivery. I mean, vital. Southeast Asia is kind of my favorite region. So things like Facebook Marketplace were first tested there. And it's become a unicorn factory. And normally China is the unicorn factory pushing out 30, 40 um, unicorns a year. But almost everything that's happening there, it's, it's the perfect environment because you have a population who is from young to old or all on their phones as their primary device. They're, they're internet savvy. They almost always speak both English and a native language. So there's no problem consuming both local services and international services. And the adoption rate is incredibly high. And so we're seeing a lot of businesses that can go typically from zero to to unicorn in, in under two or three years. And there's been a big shift in startups over the last few years. Normally, zero to unicorn has, was, a, was a five to six year journey. Now we're seeing a nine to 12 year journey. And the exception to that rule has been e-commerce and payments. So e-commerce is doing incredibly well, and it's only going to get better. And I measure this not by techno savvy people, but people who are perhaps not the most techno savvy. And I'll give you a great example. My, my old man um, took me a very long time to get him to adjust to SMS. And only recently in the last year have I got him adjusted to WhatsApp. Yeah. The same person has now become 
uh, Netflix uh, junkie uh, is using delivery services like 6060, which is incredibly good. And who would have thought someone like Checkers would actually do a fantastic, honestly fantastic job of, of doing an Uberized service? I mean, they're probably the last brand you'd expect it from. You'd expect it from a Woolies or someone else. Yeah. And, and what we're seeing is that it's, it's created this massive conversion and trust with people to use and consume online. Um, more so than, than any time in our history. And I think that's going to bode incredibly well for payments, e-commerce, and digital, not even digital first, digital only services. Yeah, you, you make some good points there. And just for the listeners who, because there's always confusion as to what a startup is and what we're talking about when you talk about startups. And it leads on to the next question I have for you. We here talking about something that is digitally enabled, but not only digitally enabled, but also can scale without much human intervention. So for example, the work you do with box commerce is scalable with as minimal human intervention as possible, where areas the work we do in terms of publishing broadcasting requires, in order to scale quite a lot, to, to publish more stories requires more human beings, although it can scale in some cases, but the, at the core of it requires a lot of human beings to, to make it bigger. Would I be right in summarizing it like that? I think that's the perfect summary. So we talk about growth versus scale. Yeah. So growth, you've got a business, you're, you're growing your revenues 10% every year, you know, from an MBA standpoint, five pillars, you're the gold standard. You're beating inflation. Well done. You have your bonus, have your holiday in the Maldives. In our business, it's a, it's, it's a, the expectation is completely unrealistic. Hi, Mr. Startup, with no money, we want you to grow an X billion dollar business in six years in a new area that doesn't exist against all reasonable market forces. It's, it, it's, a, completely, it's a complete fool's errand. And, um, that's where we talk about scale. And scale, you kind of want to start growing 20% month on month, which compounds about 380% or somewhere around there. My math's probably have to be checked on that. Um, but it's a whole different level of um, sort of, you know, revenue growth per year. It, 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 it's potentially an insane task. But, but again, we go out and do that. And, and you hit the nail on the head. The, the easiest cheat to see if something is scalable is to see whether or not a human being has to be awake and at their desk to service a customer to do it. And if there is, there's usually an overhead to that human being. There's yes. usually much smaller margin. And then that's the difference. If you can get a business where your staff don't have to be awake for you to make money, that's when you can scale. And it's not to be said it can't be done in media. People like Gorka and no, like social media. Exactly that. Great. Now we come to, I mean, obviously now to, to build a startup, to build a startup, you still need human beings as much as, as much as you need fewer of them than you would in a traditional, if I can put it that way, business. And that's where the challenge typically starts, I think, for, for many businesses or for many startups, because again, as you mentioned, you have limited uh, budget early on, but at the same time to build whatever it is, especially if it's a promising or you're solving a big problem, you need some pretty smart people who come at a heavy price. Is there a cheat sheet to that? Do you offer shares? Do you offer share options? How do you go about it? So I think you're right. I think the first part is finding the right people. And um, there's, there's a couple of parts to that. The first part is hire for fit, don't hire for skill. You can teach people skills. You can't teach people not to be bad humans. And these people, you're going to ask them to do un something very unreasonable. They're going to be working shoulder to shoulder in tight court quarters. Things are going to get messy and punchy and 
nasty. You're going to want to high five each other or strangle each other, depending on the day. So the first part is culture. Culture is the single most important thing. And especially because you're going to have a small group of people who are going to wear many hats. You know, there are there are days um, in the early days of my startup where I'd come in at night or on weekends and clean the office as I mean, um, just because we didn't have anyone to do it. And, you know, I wanted a good place for my people. The next part is, and it was a mistake I made early on, I hired a lot of people. I was able to get a lot of people to believe in the dream, which I suppose is part of it as well. You know, as a leader, you've got to set a vision and get people all aligned to that vision. But I hired a lot of people who were big deals. I mean, absolutely rock star CVs. I don't know what they saw in me, but I mean, coming from your Googles, your Microsofts, your Amazons. And most of those, or at least some of those, turned out to be our weakest performance. So there was a lesson there in that just because someone comes from a big organization doesn't mean they perform as well or without the brand behind them. Can they still? And then salaries are a thing. I'd, I'd say get a few really good people um, rather than lots of really average or really poor people because you don't want the rework. So the salaries do get, get interesting quite quickly. And then you've got to remember that these people are, are they haven't necessarily 100% signed up for the risk you're taking. Yes. And that's where you can have a balance of equity. If you believe absolutely strongly that these people are going to perform, you can give them equity. But don't rush to do that. Hi, I met you. We're going to do great things. Here's the stake in my business. Don't do that. Work with the person for a year or two. Offer the equity based on performance clauses. If they reach those clauses and you're happy, you will then give them a vest and a cliff. So a vest says over five years, you will earn this equity. The cliff says once you've got this equity, you need to wait at least a year before you can sell it. And then that's generally a way to do it. You've also got to remember that if you do your job right as a CEO, that equity is going to be worth lots of money. So if I look at my business, we, we started off really small. And at the idea stage, we took some money. The investors who invested in were able to sell 1% of that money for multiples upon of their return um, from what they invested. And in the next round, you know, my next round of investors will, will see probably anywhere between five and 10 times their money as well. So you've got to be careful with how much equity you give away too early because that's going to be worth a lot of money that'll take your business further later. And you have to, in your head, decide, is it worth me paying someone a good salary versus giving them something that's going to be worth 20 years of their salary later. And, and it's really about how much you value that person and how much you believe that person is aligned to your vision and is actually going to treat it like their own baby. They're going to stick with you in the good times, in the bad times, and there will be horrific bad times. There will be times when you don't take a salary. There will be times where you know you don't know how you're going to pay the bills, but you've got three days to figure it out, all those things. And you've got to see whether those people are going to be in there or they're going to leave on the next big job offer and you've just given away you know $3 million that you could have used to, to move the business forward. So yes, give equity, but give equity to those who truly deserve and don't rush to that decision. That's good advice. But also from a technical point of view, those skills, would you say, especially in things like e-commerce, I'd say generally across the digital technology, are they are they scarce across the continent in, in South Africa as well? Or are they plenty? That's a good question. And I'm going to balance it across different skill sets. So on UX and CX, they 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 are certainly scarce in terms of there are maybe 15 people who I believe in South Africa are unbelievable world-class level UX designers, but that's okay. It's, it's a remote workforce. You can get people out of Russia, Poland, other places who are unbelievable, China as well. Mm. 
Um, so you don't necessarily have to limit yourself. In terms of technical skills, Amazon has a core core team here in Cape Town, so it's actually very easy to get some of the world's best um, that are available right here in South Africa. There is a dev house called Derivco in Durban who has an incredible amount of um, Microsoft skills as well. So from a dev point of view, finding really good devs um, from a backend point of view, incredibly easy across sort of the Amazon stacks and the Microsoft stacks. Front-end developers, very rare to find great ones. And by great ones, they should be able to pixel-perfect reproduce what your UX team, uh, design team does, no matter how complex the design. Those skills tend to be rare. Uh, the Reacts, the Angulars, things that. Uh, in terms of growth hacking, um, non-existent in South Africa, a lot of the, and Africa, the, the, the number of people who are actively upskilled in modern digital marketing is, is non-existent. Uh, really? I found, it's interesting because you get a lot of emails, even I do, where people say, we can help you with SEO, with growth hacking, with this and that. Would you say those people are typically dated skills or dated knowledge? Um, I've just seen if I if I they've picked up the terms they're they're giving you the terms and then when I yeah. see the execution and approach it tends to be super outdated some of it almost dangerous to the customer in terms of black hat techniques um, yeah. especially in SEO I think everyone's picked up on a thing but every third person on social media is you know copying someone else's formula and doing the cheesy Gary V videos and it's just like no yeah. just no here is your sign that these people are the wrong people altogether. And, and the ones who, who are doing it, they're, they're talking more about ROI, ROI CAC, um, revenue deltas. And I just haven't, and a lot of people we've interviewed because we've been actively looking, they don't pass the first, you know, kind of warm up of the conversation. They don't even make it to the technical evaluation. So I have yet to find, you know, people I find are kind of up to standard and I don't consider myself to be up to a standard I would like. But if they're not meeting my bare minimums, they're not going to meet the other ones. We have been able to, again, and because it's a global business and a global economy, um, you don't have to sell yourself short and say, I only want to hire the guy who's, you know, got an office five minutes from me. Um, We have found fantastic skills out of the U.S., um, some parts of Eastern Europe, um, where the guys are incredibly strong, have proven case studies with big kind of startups who are now billion-dollar valuation. and, And everything they do ticks the right boxes, and I just haven't seen a lot of that yet. That's very interesting. Now, in terms of uh, you've hired the right people, you're on your way to building a good product. But again, going back to that analogy of a, of, a, of a startup versus a typical business, to make a startup work, to take advantage of that opportunity, you need to have the funds or the fuel in the tank to see you through a couple of years of no real profit to to sort of capture that market and scale it. Unlike a typical traditional business where you can fund your business and fund your business growth with your own profit. At what stage, firstly, would you say that a startup has validated their idea and is now ready to go seek investments? And then consequent to that, how do they then go about it? Okay, so... First thing I want to start with is when you get that, that, that idea, that idea that won't leave you alone for like six months, that's the one you know you need to do. And at that point, please don't quit your job. The, the thing I hear all the time because we've overly romanticized, you know, the startup world yeah. is I've quit my job and I'm doing my startup and I'm, I just want to give them a hug and go, no, honey, no, sweetie, don't, no. Don't, don't do that. 
<laughs> let other people fund your success. Um, so in your idea stage, don't quit your job. Try and work on that idea, validate that idea. You know, go 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 sit in a coffee shop and offer to buy people coffee and ask them, hey, is this a problem for you? Would you buy this? How much would you pay for this? Would you buy it for me? And kind of what were the things that would, if, how would I deliver this in a way that you would buy it for me? And if you can get 100 people to say, yes, you've got a business. Um, then you go into your seed stage. And here again, please don't take money. So what you've got to remember is your cap table is finite. You don't want to be giving away, and in the early stages, you give away huge amounts of equity because your risk is high and you're still in what's called the value of death where you're probably going to die and you stay in that value of being completely non-viable, insane. Any accountant would say this business must be closed immediately. So about series B. So you're in the seed stage, you start building a thing. Again, hopefully you haven't quit your day job. Hopefully you've married well and your wife's a lawyer or a doctor or, you know, she's smarter than you, hopefully. Yeah. (laughs) You've got a fallback. Um, You start to build a business and you might even run a second business to fund that business, whatever the case may be. I mean, I run a services business at kind of premium a year. You pay for the other stuff. Um, You then get to the late seed. And the late seed is I'm I'm about to finish my product or I've just finished my product and I've got a couple of customers and it's not my my granny who thinks I'm amazing or my mom who's a little biased. It's it's, it's a couple of real customers who, for whatever reason, see value in your product. At that point, that's when you should start considering taking some capital. You can give away less. You've started to, to prove some traction. But the minimum you want is to have a product and to at least have one customer. That's the ideal stage to take money. And that's really important because it gives you better leverage, but more to the point, it'll get you to get your product out quickly. And you must get your product out quickly. If you're not a little bit embarrassed about your product, you've taken too long to get it to the market. Great is the enemy of good, as the old French saying, and it's just that it doesn't have to be fantastic. And then the analogy I'm going to use is ice cream and sprinkle. My favorite memory is a Flake 99 on Fisher Beach with my grand. And on a hot day, you see ice cream, you'll go to buy ice cream. If you come back the next day, it's still an, it's an even hotter day, but you know they've got ice cream and they've got sprinkles. Hey, I want that flake 99. Come back the third day, hottest day in history. They've got sprinkles. They don't have ice cream. You're not going to buy ice cream. And my point is features are sprinkles. You don't need sprinkles to sell it. You just need, do I, do I solve the core problem well? And that's the, the concept of MVP. People think minimum viable product is doing a bunch of stuff really quick. It's not. It's doing a very select handful of things incredibly well and just getting it out there. So get it out there. And the reason I say wait until that is because if you're burning money paying, you know, 600, 700 to a million rand in salaries every month, you're not going to sit and tinker with your product forever and, and waste time getting it out because you're going to be conscious that you're wasting money. Um, and, and tech people, and I are one, um, love their tech. And it's not about the tech. The tech enables the business. You've got to get out there and build a business as fast as you can. So that'll kind of force you into doing that. So now you, let's say you're going to go raise some money. You raise your money pre-seed or into that. And the goal of that money is you need to have 24 months runway. And what's going to happen is you should have a plan for that money in terms of this is what I'm going to achieve. This is the signaling I'm going to achieve that's important to the next round in terms of growing my customers, growing my revenue, and showing that I have a good understanding of how to grow the money I've been given. And again, you're trying to grow revenue. You don't need to get profit, but you certainly got to show that you can take a market quickly because that's the goal of the money. Instead of growing a business over 50 years, you're going to grow it over five or 10. And you do that by continuously spending all the money you make back into growing more revenue. But okay, you've got your 24 months money. By month 12, you're going to start raising again because it's going to take you six to 12 months in an African market to raise money. Now, we were 
freakishly lucky. We raised money out of the valley. It took four weeks, a couple of emails, one Skype, and our very cool VC flew in from the valley to, to kind of have a beer with me. And that, that was the kind of the extent of the, the conversation. And shout out to Gold Venture Capital for being amazing. Um, but let's say you get that route. Now you've got your money. You've got to get to your A round. Your A round says, I'm going to take a big chunk of money, sort of minimum $4 million, somewhere up to $10 million. And you're going to go capture a percentage of a market. Your B round says, you've done that. Now let's see if you can get an actual meaningful market share. Your C round invests for, exists for investment bankers. It artificially inflates your multiples and your values. So they can either list you or sell you at, at a silly amount. And then each time you're going up anywhere between 3 and 10x in value. So again, it goes back to this growth versus scale. You, you've got a very unrealistic from the outset task of how can you prove that you've grown this business? And that's what you should be focused on. People focus on the sprinkles, they focus on the product. What you should be focused on is the customers and revenue because that's what gets you money. I mean, it's great that you built a cool thing and you threw in meaningless, useless um, phrases like AI and blockchain and whatever the latest um, flavor of the month is. It won't get you money. What will get you money is showing that you have a plan for it, that you use it well, and you survive long enough, which brings us full circle to survival. You are going to need to learn to survive. You will ruin your health, your money, your relationship, your spiritual well-being, and everything else along the way. And, you know, if you're feeling a little bit bipolar, a little bit suicidal, and you're thinking about selling your car um, to pay your staff, which I've done twice, um, that's okay. You've reached your first 10 seconds of being a startup. It gets harder. <laughs> Now, I mean, this is all good and well, and, and it all makes sense in terms of uh, this, the various investment rounds and what you need in terms of people skills. But we know that we in South Africa and other listeners are in Nigeria, in Kenya, in Egypt, around the continent. And we don't have, I would say, enough, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, enough of these investors to go around. And we don't have enough of these skills on the continent to go around. So in terms of everything that you've talked, and you operate on a, on a more global and outside uh, South Africa, outside Africa level, on a more local, on a more continental perspective, what applies locally and what doesn't? I am going to challenge that question a little. I am <laughs> going to challenge everyone not to think local. So I used to do design um, for, for, for Template Monster and became kind of one of the top selling authors in the world. And I wasn't a particularly good designer from the outset. Yeah. At least I don't think I was anywhere near a good designer. And how I got there is I didn't compare myself to everyone locally. The moment you're in a small pond, fish only grow to the size of their environment. So true. how I started with Template Monster as, as, as a useless young designer is I compared myself. I looked at the top five that they had in their list and I just sat emulating and copying them and using them as the standard. And I think you have to do the same in terms of this business. You, you, you're trying to grow the next Facebook or the next Netflix. So why would you compare it to the guy next to you building something useless in WordPress? They, they, they don't do that. Um, you should be setting yourself to the same standards because you're going to compete against those people. Let's say tomorrow you win some pitching event and you end up on a global stage in San Francisco. Do you really want to pitch like a local or do you want to pitch against those Ivy League, Stanford, you know, people who eat, sleep and breathe this? And then and you're going to lose your opportunity if you don't. And I think it's the same to your opportunity. Your, your, your vision is to create a fantastic business that's going to be this mega scale rock star. 
you know, you're going to buy yourself the Dallas Cowboys one day kind of business, you cannot and you absolutely should not set yourself to local standards or local limitations. You will fail faster. You absolutely should not get caught up in, air quotes, the ecosystem. I once brought a guy from one of the biggest VCs in the world to a, a, a big event in Cape Town because there's a big promo company, promos, all that stuff. I won't name their name. I'll be nice. Um, and he rocked up at this event. And I mean, these guys have got, you know, hundreds of million dollars of checkbook. And he says, you should really get me the names of these startups. I absolutely do not want to invest in them because they're wasting their time here with these silly events. They're not focused on their business and growing their revenue. So, and I'll give you a great example. I, I moved up to Joburg for business and a girl, and I still have the business, so that worked out. But I rocked up in a place where I knew nobody. You know, I'm a Cape Townian. We're all party trained at gunpoint to say, you know, without the mountain, it's terrible. And you Cape Town's the greatest place in the world. At least that's the mindset. I'm never moving to Joburg. So I moved to Joburg. But now you have no network, no resources, no availability, which is what I hear often from startups. They complain, oh, there's no money, there's no this, there's no that. If that's your attitude, please do not become a startup. Because if you think that's a limiting factor, oh, you haven't even experienced the first microsecond or nanosecond of being a startup. You really haven't. You're going to face a lot harder things than that, sweetie. So, so didn't. By my third year, I'd uh, become the CEO, joint CEO of a VC fund. Uh, we'd raised at that point about 60 million. The fund went on to raise another 100 million. I'd left the fund, raised money out of the valley. I've never been to Silicon Valley, by the way, despite having raised three times from the valley. I believe it's a bit of a cop out to say we don't have the resources. Remember, from the outset, you're going to grow a billion dollar business with no money in six years. That deck's already stacked against you, that you accept that day one. As one of my, my um, fantastic, I have a wonderful board member I speak to every Thursday, one of the things he said is you wanted the bike, now ride it. And he's absolutely right. So you wanted the bike, you've got to be willing to ride it. And being willing to ride it is to acknowledge that there is this resource scarcity. So let's look at South Africa. There are four VCs who I deeply respect. And it's the usual list. Of, you know, It's people like Kiet, Andrea, Clive, um, we all know them, right? It's it's the, the Callens, um, Zach Georges on the angel side. But there are four people, five people. Maximum, they're going to do three to four deals that they can do over the next three years. But let's say there's 12 to 15 people who are going to be funded in three years. That, that That's the pool. Now, when I was a VC, I saw over 2,000 businesses. I'd only fund about six of them in terms of quality. So you're already in a rare pool. And just because you want to do this thing doesn't mean you're good enough. Um, and that's a horrible thing. And you, you better learn to take feedback in this process really fast so that you do get good enough. And that's it. You, you've got no choice. Get, get good quick. Um, and there's a lovely thing by Arnold Schwarzenegger about his rules for success. And one of them is, um, you know, while you're sleeping, other people are um, out there working hard at the same goal. So I suggest you sleep a little faster. So I think in, in, in this context, again, I, I suggest you sleep a little faster and work a little harder. Um, don't accept the excuse that there is this resource limitation. So again, we're a Delaware, Delaware C Corp. I'm working out of Joburg of all places. We've raised up the valley. We're talking to great feces um, in the continent and outside of the, the continent. And, you know, things are looking good in terms of that race. But it, it wasn't because I started with a mindset of, oh, I can't do this. Oh, there isn't that. There isn't the skills. 
we we have an amazing team of people. You know, if I look at my core team from a skills perspective, you know, Alice, Mabin, you know, everyone is key. Our technical lead, our UX lead, our project manager, Dean. Toe-to-toe, they can go against people who work at your Amazons, your Netflixes, et cetera. Yeah. If I look at our board, we've got an ex-CEO of Accenture. We've got an advisor as an ex-MD of Google. We've got people from Standard Bank, uh, who's the largest bank on the continent. We've got Silicon Valley VC. And, you know, on any other day, I was born in South Africa. Um, my mom's from Malawi. Um, you know, I'm a typical African, you know, pavement special. And, <laughs> you know... None of those limits applied because I didn't start out with a limiting mindset and and, and no one has to, you know. There's nothing that says because you are African, you are less. There's nothing that says because you are African, you aren't entitled to more. In fact, what I've found with the best founders, and it's the immigrant factor, and this is something you'll actually get taught. People come with nothing to a new country where it's a slightly better playing field than the country they've run away from or left for whatever reason. And they do incredibly well because they're used to doing more with less. So I want to challenge that question and say that anyone who comes from Nigeria, Kenya, Ghana, Ivory, um, um, I'm just listing my favorite places um, because that's where I've been and where, I, you know, where, where I've got great friends doing incredible businesses, your, your Twiggers, your Yokos, your, you know, et cetera, Agape. They've done more and incredibly well in markets that, 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 that Americans and Europeans fear to trade, where, where an MBA from Europe or America will, will, will be the worst thing because you lack that empathy. Market empathy is important as well. I could do a whole two hours of that. But the important thing is I would challenge that your mindset shouldn't be, well, I can't find local capital because it will be hard to find, whether it's Kenya or Nigeria or anywhere else. In fact, in Nigeria, there are a lot of people who invest in local businesses. It's the one ecosystem I feel where there's there's a stronger commitment to local than, than anywhere else. But let's say in any place, there's five to 12 VCs maximum, probably five or six. There's only gonna be 10 slots every three years. You've got two choices. If you believe that, give up. Please give up now because what you're going to do to yourself financially, spiritually, emotionally, your relationships, it's not going to be worth it. I'm telling you that now. Please, I'm giving you a big hug and saying run away screaming now. Save yourself. If, however, you don't, if you're willing to walk over broken glass, be burnt with fire, and then I'll I'll use the, the great quote from Ben Horowitz, who's probably one of the greatest ever of all time. When I ran my startup, I slept like a baby. I woke up every two hours and cried myself to sleep. You can sounds, accept that. Sounds reality. accurate. Sounds accurate. Totally. But if you can accept that reality and you're prepared, despite that, to go off, I promise you, you will find the money. I promise you, you will find the skills. Now, people might argue, and, and this is a debate that's been coming up. And for me personally, it's become tiring because I hear it every year for the past 10 years. And, it's gotten to a point in the past couple of years and this year where I'm like, I can't be debating the same thing year in, year out, but it keeps coming up like this year. And you know about it, the debate where people might argue that you are in, as Craig, you are in a privileged position without knowing your story. They might argue that you are in a privileged position as a white person to say that we shouldn't shouldn't talk about uh, resource scarcity or investment scarcity because you're white and you know some investors, et cetera, et cetera. What's your take on this whole debate about, and this is probably the last time I'm ever going to talk about it, this debate about uh, investor buyers in tech startups across Africa? 
I mean, we, we know each other, so I think you know a bit more of my past. I do, I, I do, a, I do, I do. A, a bit of a, a privileged past would, 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 would be a lie. I think if anyone saw my life, they, they, they would not take any amount of money to live it. <laughs> but let, let, let's, let's remove that from the question. Let's say that as a white person, I am privileged. Yep. You know, the, the, the theory would be that I have a great network, even though when I came to Joburg, I absolutely didn't have a network. I worked for that network. But I think there, there is perhaps a gap, and that gap comes in investor readiness, preparing people to pitch well. I've seen people who have good businesses, who would make good founders, but they lack the ability to communicate their idea well. And for, for better or worse, people judge you on this. And I feel if you, the first job of a founder is to get people to align to their vision. If I can't communicate or sell my vision well, I'll never align my staff and I'll certainly never align investors. And I see it time and time again with these horrible ecosystem events. We've lined up these five guys that you're going to pitch to. The poor guys come there like a deer in the head headlights. They've never been taught how to pitch or they maybe do like two or three day workshops beforehand, but they're, they're usually aren't of great quality. The guys get the chance to pitch to people. They are the right startups. They have got the right ideas, but you hear them pitching and my heart breaks a little because I want to cry because I realize on any other day they would be investable. So that's the, the, the first limiting factor. The other factor, and I think it's a self-limiting factor, is this factor of believing, well, there's no money, there's no hope, I'm never going to get there. You've got to build what you want on your own. You've got to go out there and make the network and find the people and everything else. I mean, I, if I look at me when I landed in Joburg, yep. I didn't know anyone or any investors or anything else. And, and, and I think a lot of people argue now when they talk to me that I have the best roller date in Africa. And I probably... Well, you do. I mean, you, it's something that we'll talk about later. It's, it's with a group that you have, but we'll talk about that next. And, and, and that came because I, I fought for it because, I, I, you know, I, I grew up poor as a kid. You know, when I left school, I, I didn't originally have a matric. I didn't have resources. I had nothing but debt. Um, and yes, I went on to work for Mark Shuttleworth and I built a digital bank and I did all these things. But, but that was more because if you want to bet on someone, bet on someone who's poor because they're hungrier, because they, they, their idea of suffering and a privileged person's idea of suffering is vastly different. What someone of privilege will think is an inconvenience, someone, someone who's grown up from a different background will, will laugh at. And that's a good recipe for success. I will bet on someone who's determined and hungry rather than someone who's got an Ivy League education. Um, and, and again, I'd like to urge people to think that, that their limitations are not limitations, but their advantages. The ability to do more with less is the greatest strength you're going to need in a startup because I can promise you, it doesn't matter what school you went to, I don't care how smart you are. Most of this, oddly enough, is going to boil, boil down to dumb luck and timing and hard work. Nothing else. You don't have to be the smartest guy in the world. Um, I do think there's a gap. And I think, there, to round off the question, I think, I think it's, it's in how people are presented, how they're prepared. I wish there was more done on that because I think a lot of founders go unnoticed. But again, you can come from an Ivy League education. You can have the best silver spoon background you will not do well if you cannot communicate and align people to your vision, if you cannot find those resources or create them out of fresh air. Um, 
my, my team often jokes, my, my best skill is the fact that I can pull rabbits out of hats that don't exist. Um, and it is that, oh, crub, we need, um, we need a million bucks in four days to pay this bill. I'll, I'll go out and I'll find it. Um, and you need that. Um, but the first thing you can't do, and I see people do often, is throw up their hands and go, it's unfair. Life is unfair. Being a startup is a million times more unfair than life. That is that is very true. And I think something we forget in these debates is that you, you made a choice to, to go to and start a startup or start a business for that matter. It's not some, nobody forced you to do it. So, and it's probably because I'm wired that way. And if, because you made the choice, it's up to you to find the resources to make it work. But that's just how and I- ask for help. And ask for help, yes. But it's all up to, what I'm trying to say is, it's entirely up, up to you, whether you ask for help, who you ask for help, how you go about it, whether it works or not. At the end of the day, when nothing works out, I believe, and this is again, probably how I'm wired, you stand in front of the mirror and say, okay, I, I didn't make it work out. My best wasn't good enough. Instead of, as you say, going around and saying life isn't fair, so many things are unfair. Now, something that's interesting, moving away from startups a little bit and VC funding, that's interesting and I've been observing because I've been part of it is you started two groups that for me have been like a, a social experiment of sorts. Although they, in terms of value add and the information shared and the connections made, they're great, but they've been a, a social experiment of sorts. And I know that you're interested in sort of human behavior to some extent to observe because when the lockdown started in South Africa, I think that's the time, yeah. The, you had one group with VC startups across the continent, across Asia, and even in Silicon Valley as well, sharing resources, sharing information, and very useful connections being made, Some even some getting hired by other people in the group, et cetera. And then the COVID-19 pandemic happened and the lockdown in South Africa happened in March. And then everybody, I mean, every single WhatsApp group I was in was talking about it. Every single media publication was talking about it. And it became sort of saturated with COVID-19. And you decided, which was quite a genius move, to create a separate group where everything is allowed, including COVID-19. And it's become like, and I say it's a social experiment, getting back to my point in a roundabout way. It's a social experiment in that during a time when people sort of there's a lot of uncertainty, it allowed people to vent in a safe space, but without devaluing sort of the relationships they previously had in another group or setting. Would I be correct in putting it that way? Absolutely, because there was a very core set of principles in the first group. The first group has over $80 billion in the room. There have been behind doors, 60 deals done within that group. There's a lot of being hiring, a lot of networking. And the core function of that group was really to regulate behavior. In our ecosystem, there's a lot of bad behavior. So we were very selective on, on who we allowed in. Um, we let a few bad eggs in specifically so that they could be ejected later. There was a deliberate bit of thinking around that as well. Um, but it was around getting the signaling and value creation right. Your job, if you, again, and it comes back to raising money, if you want to be able to, to raise money, you have to be able to show you can create value. So there was some very strict parameters around getting people to create the right signaling that would then lead to them getting deals without actively having to go, hey, I'm a startup, give me money, give me money, give me money, which, which, which happened. 
But I also knew from a behavioral point of view that, that, that in times of extreme pressure, humans break. Stressors are what they are and they create differences in behavior. And I didn't want good people resorting to bad signaling, which might negatively impact them from a raising point of view. So I created a space and, and, and almost pushed the behavior. And then really it was actually someone else who, who, who originally wanted to start the group. And then we thought we may as well have a spin-off group. And um, very quickly degraded to what that person predicted would be the lowest common um, denominator. Always does. And that was okay. And we needed that space, but I also didn't want it to detract from, from you know, the, the, the three years of work that had gone into the VC group where we have, you know, some of the biggest VC in the world sitting there. We have people who are quietly observing who are from some of the bigger VCs in the world, um, in Asia and the Valley and everywhere else. Um, I didn't want to have the pandemic do what it had done to the economy to do it to that group. And I think it's important to, to have that have those spaces and then there's a second goal to this second part of the second group is to show the human side of people because what you really want is relationships yes. and um one of my board members is great he says never never one of his pieces of advice is never never let people see you bleed like never show the human side but i'll almost slightly go against that grain in saying that human connections and relationships are what you sell on most and part of the group was really to give people a, a space to, to, to grow those connections. And that's why, counterintuitively, we have a no pitching rule. You're not allowed to pitch. And yes. lots of deals are getting done because you have to build that, 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 that relationship currency first before you can go ask for money. People buy into people. And so really a lot of both groups is about connecting people on a meaningful way, either creating value or on a personal level. And I think that the, the, the two groups now do that equally, which is quite good. And probably now everyone sees me to be the grumpy person that I am. <laughs> well, it comes, it comes with age, the grumpiness. Trust me, my doctor also said that. Apparently, it's some hormonal changes that happen to people who between 40 and 50. It, it will reduce over time, don't worry. Now, but what's, and I like that. I mean, it resonates with me a lot because I'm a firm believer in uh, people trade with people. Humans do business with humans and also being a firm believer of not being a transactional type person or transactional relationships where it's a tit for tat thing. So I pitch you this, you do this for me, then you counting score next time you're going to ask for this. So I'm not, so that that's why I mentioned it from a social behavior perspective because it resonates with me quite a lot because for long-term relationships and for meaningful business deals, you have to at some point connect with a person at a human level. And also goes back to the VC funding and startups, et cetera, and the bias. Part of the bias we're not talking about is exactly that, is that, again, humans buy from people, humans buy from other humans. No, and you can correct me, you know this better than I do. No VC is going to invest blind into somebody they just saw their pitch today and then throw cash at them for a series a or series b or throw millions at them would i be right or wrong you would be absolutely right it's all about people and relationship and and buying in you because that's what they're trusting and they're trusting that if i give you this huge amount of money you're not going to go blow it and get a pa and start flying first class you are someone who's going to take that responsibility incredibly seriously. You're going to understand that 
I have entrusted other people's money to you and you're going to show that the reverence and deference that, that that's needed. And, and more than that, they have to believe in your vision and they have to buy into you. And again, it's, it's that communication, it's that relationship. And without it, you're, you're never going to raise money. Or I would argue that you're going to raise the wrong type of money. You're going to raise money from people who are transactional, which you don't want. They're going to be hounding you every day. Where's my money? Where's my money? They're not going to buy into the fact that this is a five, six, or even 12-year vision in terms of them getting. They're not going to understand that 99% of all VC funds fail to show any kind of return. It's actually just a handful of VCs that are carrying the whole world, the ones who have the billion-dollar exit. And, and that's a big thing, and it's not going to happen overnight. And I think people also take that rejection personally. You need to embrace rejection, and you need to learn to be constructive and, and, and ask for Totally, like, hi, Mr. VC, I totally accept that you said no. Could you please give me some pointers or just help me, you know, improve or, or where did I go wrong? And then be willing to accept that feedback because you are going to hear it a lot and you are, you're going to hear no more than you hear yes. And I think a lot of people go, oh, well, they're idiots. They don't know what they're talking about because my idea is the best idea ever. And it's, it's not. Be close to it. You really are. You, you've got to learn to take that feedback and accept that. It's absolutely part of the game and work on building better relationships, a better relationship with your the people you want investment from, better relationship with yourself. That's important. Most founders are dysfunctional. It's, it's, a, it's a great trait. You need to be abused, broken, and all these other good things to, to do well in those initial early stages because, again, you're doing this reasonable thing. You are doing an insane thing. You are saying build a billion dollar business in six years with nothing. No no sane human being takes that on because it's not a sane level of work. But you will need those relationships and you will need those people to believe in you and back you. So absolutely, you are 100% correct. Great. Now to wrap this all up and sort of put it all together, there's a big move and something we observe quite a lot at African is that whether it's a startup in Nigeria, in Kenya, in South Africa, a lot of them that are getting funding end up, even VC funds. I mean, there's one VC fund that invests. It's a South African guy, Pule Taukubo. He started in South Africa, but he eventually had to incorporate it in Delaware as a VC fund in order to attract investments from family offices, et cetera, et cetera. There's this trend that if you want, and I, I don't think trend is the right word. It's sort of like you have to, if you want to attract the good investments. And it leads on to my question where these startups are all getting incorporated in Delaware in the US and then they go on to raise funding. They're still African founders. And there's all sorts of, I think, incentives and, and, and things around incorporating in Delaware. What would you say is wrong or what needs to be done in terms of regulations around startups and VCs in South Africa to make it more attractive for one, to start a digital business here and two, for investors to start putting their money up? That is a good question with a couple of facets. So let's see if I can do it justice. So again, you kind of know my background. I spent a lot of time lobbying the Reserve Bank and a whole bunch of people to try and change the legislation. But you know whether or not that's viable is questionable. And I'll tell you why. So, so if you think about Delaware, Delaware was a very smart move as, as a, as a, um, a state that didn't have anything going on for them sort of economically. So what they decided to do is become the go-to place from a legislative point of view for all tech companies, whether it's Facebook or us or, or anybody really. Um, you know, there are 10,000 businesses who have the same postal address that I do and, and some of the biggest companies you know do, which is in Wilmington and Delaware. 
it's because of it's an attractive piece of legislation, as you as you correctly identified. Yeah. You know, you're talking eight percent tax rate. Um, you're talking favorable IP laws, et cetera, et cetera. Now, if you come to somewhere like South Africa, where there I've got a forty-seven percent personal tax rate, twenty-eight percent corporate tax, twenty-eight percent at the exit tax unfavorable laws in terms of labor, um, it's just not viable and it never will be. And there was a great example where Garmin bought some amazing technology that they wanted to show on uh, at E3. They spent a lot of money buying it from Stellenbosch company, hundreds yeah. of millions of dollars, and they couldn't get the IP moved into the name over three months. And they actually said they'll never buy from South Africa ever again. And so from that basis, there's already some challenges. So I think legislatively, given our country's economic frameworks and, and then the reality is 3 million taxpayers supporting 55 million people, um, I can't see them giving meaningful um, tax rebates to make that work. And really, as an investor, they don't want to see half their returns get lost in IP exit. Um, I mean, if we just do that 28 plus 28, it's already more than half their money gone. And and then we I've seen this with founders who've had exits in Kenya and other places where they come to us and they go, cool, I've got an exit for my business. I'm very happy. And then they realize the tax man's taking half their money and the money isn't what they thought it was. And believe me, whoever buys you isn't going to pay that tax for you. Um, that's the first problem. The second problem, um, not problem, but the, 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 the piece of advice I'd give you, if you want to raise money, you have to raise money with a view to the future. Um, you, you create the board you want for, for now, but you, you raise for the investors you want in the future. And what I mean by that is, great, you raise some local money here, you've got, a, you've got a, one of the amazing angels, someone like a, a Zach or, or you've got a VC fund like, like Callan or, or Knife Capital and you fantastic. The problem is you then need another round and you're going to go through another three, four, five rounds to get to where you want to be. But there isn't enough capital um, locally for that to happen. Your, your, your follow-on rounds, late seed, seed, um, A, et cetera, the average seed round in the rest of the world is $4 million. That's bigger than, than most existing VC funds on the continent have as a whole fund, let alone can write a check for. So you are going to be raising outside. And what you have to understand is, is the psyche of that investor. That investor wants to understand your legal frameworks, your tax frameworks, and they want to be able to high-five you or strangle you in equal measure, but they want to do so in comfort. And that comfort means they want you structured in a, in a, in a zone where they understand the legal frameworks, where their lawyers are comfortable, where they understand and can manage the risk of that capital and the risk of investing in you, which is a big risk. You know, you've got a 99.9% chance of failing. Um, you know, of 10 million startups every year, 1% get funded. Of the 1% who funded, 1% of those succeeded. It's crazy. You know, the people who are willing to put their money in VC are a brave and crazy bunch, and we salute you and thank you because you are taking the most unreasonable risk in the world, and without you, you know, we wouldn't be anywhere. But to that point, do not, please, please, please do not establish your business locally. You can create an opco or a dev shop who does the work and invoices so your IP isn't there, whatever the case may be. If you want to operate in a market, operate in that market. If you want to create jobs in that market and pay taxes, we pay ridiculous amounts of tax here. Uh, great, do that. But do not have your IP in your country because you will not raise money. You will never grow a good business because people are not going to throw huge amounts of money into that structure. And the problem is if you create a good business and you raise a good amount of money, that's created value. 
And that value will be charged as an IP exit tax. So from day one, you set yourself up outside, you get all the right structuring, get a good lawyer, get good tax, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Please pay your tax as well. Um, but do that rather because I can promise you it'll make raising easier. And we raised our seed round out of the valley to start with because we decided from day one, let's incorporate in Delaware, let, let's do things right. And there's only kind of a few jurisdictions that people are going to invest in. Delaware, London, um, your free zones uh, in, in Dubai, um, Singapore, uh, and then possibly a Liechtenstein, Guernsey, Panama kind of situation. And I'm going to group those all together just because, you know, typical tax haven. Um, and then you've also got to consider your tax relationships. So, for example, um, you know, people love to go to Mauritius, but, you know, if you're a South African citizen, there is you know, there are tax implications either way because they've got a relationship. So yeah. you've also got to understand, and, 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 and I've seen it very often, and, and I, I used to work for one of the, the, the first major unicorns Africa. It is not uncommon for a founder to then go take a seven-month holiday somewhere else and take their payment in another country, um, just because you know they founded themselves infavorably in a specific country. So, day one, if you're going to raise money, set up as a Delaware before you even begin. Um, Stripe Atlas. There's lots of programs where you can easily get you know set up there. Um, and remember that. The thing you want is money. And if you want people's money, you're going to have to build that relationship. But more importantly, you have to make them feel safe and secure in that investment and do everything to honor and protect their money. And that probably means sitting up in a place they know, like Delaware. I think that's the most brilliant advice. You've sort of tie up everything that we've been speaking about today. Craig, uh, as always, man, thanks for making time. And thanks for the great advice. I think a lot of people will learn a especially those looking to build scaling uh, tech businesses will learn a thing or two here. Thank you once again. Thank you so much and keep up the great podcast, man. Remember to tell your friends, family, and colleagues that the show is available to listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, or any other app that you use to listen to podcasts. Also, make sure to head over to www.iafrican.com forward slash radio. That is www.iafrican.com forward slash radio. And subscribe to get notified on new episodes and any other iAfrican radio shows. Stay safe on the web.